0: Hey, how's it going? How am I? Um, yes, I am okay. Um, I'm only okay because it's really cold and, um, I have really poor circulation, so it's it's pretty hard at the moment. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, you probably didn't come here to listen to me whinge about the weather. Um, and I'm, I'm sad that I've already brought up the weather and it's only been what, like 20 seconds or something. Um, Anyway, welcome to the second episode of the show. Um, Today, I had the honor of speaking with Laurie Paul, L.A. Paul. Um, Actually, before I kind of jump into that, if you don't know what this podcast is about, um, you should listen to the intro that I posted. Um, It should be somewhere on the screen or whatever platform you're kind of using. Um, It's very brief and it should give you some kind of background as to what I'm doing here and who I am. If you want to know who I am, if you care at all, please care about me. Um, Yeah, so Laurie Paul, uh, she's a philosopher from Yale University in the USA. And there she is a professor of uh, (laughs) philosophy and cognitive science. Um, She works on the nature of time, experience, causation, decision theory, and the self. And those are a lot of big words, which we will unpack as the conversation um, goes by. Uh, Her recent work focuses on the thing that, if you listen to the previous interview, I described it at the end, and it's called the transformative experience. Um, That's kind of what our conversation focused around. And yeah, I guess briefly, what the question that Laurie is trying to kind of unpack is whether we can make an informed decision about something that we haven't yet experienced. So, you know, if I decide when I decided to go to university, I didn't decide because I knew what the experience was going to be like. I I don't know that. I don't know what it's going to be like for me. Um, I have to experience it in order to know that. And so there's kind of like this scary epistemic space that we're in. And we use the word epistemic a lot and what that That refers to, like, things that are related to knowledge, like, you know, conscious human knowledge, I guess. Um, Yeah, and so, like, if if I'm not consciously aware of how I'm going to change by committing to something like university, how can I know whether it's going to be something that I want to do or not? Um, I guess, like, you know, I can't. I can't really know that. Um, I can rely on testimony or I can rely on... um, Yeah, you know, if I really trust someone and they're telling me, you know, go study this, it's great. You know, maybe then I can have a reasonable idea of what it's going to be like. But I can't know how I'm going to change. That's something that happens in the future. I can't access the future um, yet. Oh, actually, well, yeah, I guess the future's... Anyway, that's a question for another day. Um, Yeah, So, and the conversation is... I was quite nervous when I interviewed Laurie because she is... um, yeah, she she is a a highly regarded and esteemed philosopher. Um and so there was there's a bit of background knowledge that was kind of required in order to to understand what she was speaking about. There is a bit of background knowledge, I think. Um and so I I should probably clarify one or two things because I was I was <laughs> kind of it took me a while to kind of focus in the conversation. Um and so yeah, like uh there may have been a few things that i didn't ask her to clarify which I should have um but this this example that I'm about to give um should help kind of should serve as the framework within which the conversation kind of rests on um, and this is actually a really cool philosophical kind of concept um and it's a problem pro- it's a problem posed by an Australian philosopher called Frank Jackson. Frank Jackson gets us to ask a question by considering a scenario. So here's the scenario. Imagine someone called Mary and Mary lives. She's lived in a room that's black and white, as in the, only the colors, black and white. And she so she's never seen a color before, like red or anything like that. But Mary is also a super genius. She knows she has learned everything, even the things that we don't even know yet about color. She's learned everything about color. She knows all the physiology. She knows what when the light enters your eyes. She knows about all of the neural pathways and stuff that translate the light into kind of a conscious experience of the color and stuff. Um, She knows knows everything. And so Jackson, the guy who comes up with this example, Frank Jackson, he asks whether Mary can know what it's like to experience color if she hasn't experienced it yet. But, you know, she knows exactly what the experience is looks like and at an objective scientific level. Um, So yeah, like that Laurie kind of her, uh, the idea of the transformative experience, which which I've kind of rambled on a little bit about that kind of rests on this similar situation. Um, So if Mary goes outside and sees a red apple, um, let's say that's just the first thing that's there. And she's already read a lot about the color red. um, Does she, is it a new experience for her um, or does she already know? Does she already know what it's like to see the color red? Um, yeah. Anyway, it was a really fun conversation with Laurie. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Enjoy. Okay. So you're in Melbourne, and you just you just arrived.
1: It's fabulous. I'm, it's fabulous. Yes, the, the weather is beautiful. Okay. Ligon Street is excellent, as always, and I'm happy to be here.
0: Okay. Um, and wh- where? T- tell me where you fl- You were in Brisbane, you said.
1: I was in Brisbane. I was speaking at the University of Queensland in <laughs> the economics department. Okay. And before that, I was in California speaking at Facebook, and I came from New York.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, and what brings you to Melbourne?
1: I'm giving the Lewis and Taylor lecture at Melbourne Uni. I'm also speaking the next day at Melbourne Uni and then speaking at Monash.
0: Ah, the the, um, the nemesis, our nemesis, yes, our yes. orange <laughs> nemesis. Um, interestingly, I was actually there uh, previously and I told you before that, um, yeah, I identified that we had both kind of transitioned from or tried to, I, I'm trying to, I think mm-hmm. you've actually properly made the transition from, <laughs> from science to philosophy. Um, but yeah, I did that at Monash and um, I found it quite interesting that um, you had... You had also, uh, what, what, exactly, what exactly was it? So you, you did your BA in chemistry.
1: Yes, and it was a BA, which is um, a little bit interesting, but th- that meant that I had more of an arts focus right. um, for my major. And I loved chemistry. Organic chemistry involves a lot of problem solving. But I realized when I was thinking about medical school that I just wanted to kind of continue thinking about big questions and try to do problem solving. And medicine, as interesting as it was, just wasn't the right path.
0: Right, um, okay, and and how, because it was quite interesting. Um, I read this interview, interview that you had done with um, New APPS.
1: Oh, uh, New Apps. Uh, new yeah. Apps, mm-hmm. yeah, and that was
0: quite a while ago. I think that mm-hmm. was in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, but you said there that, uh, because I know that one of your major themes is um, the transformative mm-hmm. experience. Um, mm-hmm. And you said that you were on the way to a Harvard medical interview. Yes. And you were sitting in a cafe. Yes. and you looked out the window, as all philosophers do, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you know, yes. you realized that it, that medicine wasn't for you and that philosophy was, but how, how did you know?
1: I didn't know, and in fact, it's, it's really pretty shocking when I think back on it, um, but it, there's a non-trivial connection, I think, between that experience and some of the things that I write about now. Um, I I think it was more that I had a deep urge to keep, thinking about, well, to start thinking about questions about the nature of experience and meaningful, and what what's meaningful about um, our lived experience and what really matters. And when I went to interview at the med school, uh, the questions that the interviewers were asking me, though they were important, were clearly not about these big mm. questions. And it dawned on me that what I really cared about was following, you know, or pursuing those questions. So I didn't really know that philosophy was right for me. And in fact, it was a huge gamble, but I jumped into it. And now the interesting thing is maybe it wasn't right for me at first, but studying philosophy, going to graduate school, made me into a philosopher and made me love what I do. So it's a little bit, I think, why don't you have to be careful not to think that, oh, well, it's obvious <laughs> yeah. that philosophy was the right thing for me mm.
0: because it wasn't. Mm. Mm. Um, and another thing that I that I noticed that I also experienced was that um, cause I, I also felt that, uh, I was, that philosophy was something that I was interested in. Um, or that, you know, it spoke to me, even though I hadn't had that much exposure to philosophy. Um, and equally, I hadn't really been, I'd been told that, you know, like, I ruminated on things for too long and you know, I was like a depressive type. And so people are like, oh, you know, the 20th century French philosophers, they've got a lot to say about things that you seem to be rambling on about. Um, but apart from that, I actually didn't know that much about philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I felt this calling towards it. And you said that you also yes. felt. But yes. is that is that because of the... Um, you know the type of thinking that was different, or was it like yeah. the idea of philosophy that appealed to you?
1: I think it's I, you know, I think that um, it does have a lot to do with it's it's the it's the type of thinking, or maybe the way to put it is it, it, it what philosophy is about is about thinking. Mm. So even though I didn't really know any philosophy, I mean, I really to speak of, it wasn't about the particular ideas; it was about the way of approaching ideas. Um, and I could have been wrong about that, but in the end, I wasn't wrong. So there's a bit of luck, but there's enough philosophy in the air. People sort of know what it is to to to, to philosophize, as, as we say. So
0: mm. okay, um, and so you've done quite a bit of philosophizing over the years, it seems. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and where did you where did you begin? What was your what were your primary interests?
1: Well, I started. I knew, um, as I said, I wanted to think about um, experience and the nature of time and what's meaningful. Um, and I also, but I'm also, I mean, with a science background, especially natural science background, I'm pretty realist. I mean, I I think that there is an external world. I think there's a big question about what we can know about the external world, but, um, but I'm not, um, but you know, because I want to be a realist, I had to find a way to blend that kind of realism with a real interest in experience. So, in fact, what I've ended up doing is lots of metaphysics and philosophy of mind and cognitive science. Um, but I first thought, maybe I'll study Heidegger. And I studied a bit of Heidegger, and I thought that was really interesting. But the method, the method um, didn't suit me. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll study Eastern philosophy, and I explored Buddhism, and that was also very interesting. But um, at least when when I was approaching it, it was clear to me that um, a lot of... Uh, when when I was exploring these ideas, I was told, at least by my teachers, that when I would ask certain kinds of questions, well, that's just a matter of faith. No, I don't think that would happen now, but that's, that's, that's what happened then. And so that sort of turned me away from focusing on, on Buddhism or other kinds of um, Eastern philosophical thinkers at the time. So I thought, well okay, I need to do analytic philosophy. So I decided to, I'm going to study, the, I want to study the nature of time and metaphysics more generally. And so I applied to graduate school and off I went. <laughs> hey, there you go.
0: Well, so it's quite interesting that you made the, the transition from continental to analytic. Um, and I'm not sure that I want to go down that path in conversation. Mm. Um, I, I saw that you also in that New Apps interview, they asked you about that. Yes. Um, uh, but okay, because I, I actually haven't done too much philosophy myself. Um, I implied that you haven't done too much <laughs> philosophy myself, but um, I, me, I haven't done too much philosophy. Um, and
1: well, oh, but but let me say, let me say, can I do mind if I? It's like it's. it's I want to say that the work that I'm doing now is really coming back to those questions. I mean, ah. I see the work in transformative experience as trying to do phenomenology with a small p, not a not a capital p. Mm. Phenomenology, the you know. Focusing on exploring the way that we understand ourselves and the relation between self and world, like, much like Heidegger, mm. um, and much like um, you know Buddhist philosophy does in its own way, but from an analytic perspective, mm. and also now from a, an empirically rich perspective, mm. um, you know from a cognitive si- a cognitive science perspective. So it's it was it wasn't the right thing for me to study then, but now I'm hoping to sort of draw on insights from all all those traditions.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Okay. And so maybe it'd be, uh, before we get onto your, you know, the work that you've been doing on the transformative experience, um, you've mentioned Buddhism a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was also noted in, so (laughs) I read this interview quite, quite, um, intensely i I tried to remember uh, as much as i could from it but it said that um you studied philosophy in india at a monastery
1: yes Yes. that's pretty incredible i loved it um i would not say that uh i studied philosophy i studied meditation and some of the philosophical ideas um underpinning uh the meditation and it's not that i didn't want to study philosophy there just wasn't any place to get that kind of training right right um but i i learned a lot from that and um I'm really convinced that the way I think about things now, it was in part formed by that very interesting and intense immersive experience.
0: Mm. And do you, do you practice meditation still? Do you...
1: No, um, but I... Well, okay. No, not officially, but mm. I do Taekwondo and I have for oh, years wow. and okay. I think of that as a very physical type of meditation. Right, um, all right. So I'm a fifth-degree black belt. I oh, still wow. train all the time. That's incredible. Um, and it's about, you know, the intensive training that you go through is about um, kind of um, understanding your physical, like your physical location and your body in mm. space and time, and, in, and I think in a very different way from how, it, how it would, you would understand or experience yourself in, a dated, in, in an ordinary context. Yeah, right. And that's quite meditative in a somewhat, uh, well, in a sporty martial arts way (laughs) i'm (laughs) sure it is
0: that would be i imagine black belt is extremely rigorous um physically or requires extreme you Mm. know um exertion but um do you is the reason you do that because of the effect that it has on your you know conscious experience of your body and space or is it you know kind of an outlet because you spend a lot of time you know philosophizing or so they Mm. say or
1: um, um, I think it's more the former. In other words, yes, both in some ways, but, um, I, I love it and I don't love other kinds of exercise in the, in, in the same way. Right. And what's interesting is, um, when you focus and train, especially at a, at a higher level, it's about practicing the same movements over and over mm-hmm. and over again to get a level level of precision and control, um, that leads mentally to, uh, I guess I would, I would describe the experience. It's as if the rest of the world slows down Mm. and you're still moving at the same pace Mm. um and so and really our sense of time passing is all about the juxtaposition between like our own internal sense and how we're what we're detecting about the external world Mm. and so what's really interesting i think for me here is that you get a sense of time changing um again in this meditative way and um and and a sense of control over your own body and and you also experience your relationship to the rest of the world in a different way. Mm. So I think it's that that I love, ultimately.
0: Mm. Okay. Um, And have you tried to examine that through your philosophy?
1: It's on the list. Okay. Um, There isn't a huge amount of research on it, and um, I think I need to have a better understanding of the cognitive structure of temporal experience, but it's very much on the list.
0: Okay, okay. Well, that would be a convenient segue to move into your... Your philosophy, um, and so where do you think where do you think would be an appropriate place to start?
1: Mm, you mean ask to ask me about my philosophy? Yeah, um, we could talk about transformative experience. Okay, that's okay. why that's why I'm here to to uh, to speak in Melbourne, and okay. it's definitely my current
0: project. Okay, okay. Well, tell me about the transformative experience. Okay.
1: So, um, I well, so transformative experience concerns um, a blend of two things namely epistemic changes and personal changes right and um what in my book transformative experience um, which i published with oup in 2014 i hung transformative experience on a peg a formal epistemology decision theory peg um and that was because i wanted to try to explore and i'll say more about what it is in a minute i want to try to i wanted to try to explore it in a formal way to bring out and explore the contours of the question right. and also make it easier to sort of object to it mm. because objections are what teach you things in mean, philosophy that's all it's all about criticism and mm. and, and uh, objecting to try to understand better so a way to summarize the concept of transformative experience is um, a blend of, of first recognizing that there are kinds of experience human experience um and we discover different kinds of experiences as, as we do different things throughout our lives, um, but that there can be a, an interesting thing that happens when we discover a new kind of experience. Namely, um, we discover what that experience is like mm-hmm. in a very distinctive way, in a way that isn't really communicated to us through, say, testimony or description. Mm-hmm. So, um, if I, if you're red-green colorblind, and I have to explain to you what, it, you know, uh, how red is different from green. The best I can do is use some other color, yeah. other color terms, right? It's not like I can. In fact, I actually don't think I could describe a color to you, even though I have both. I mean, um, even if both of us have perfectly ordinary color vision, um, the language just isn't adequate. Um, to that task, at best, I can say, "Well, yeah, red is the color that's you know between you know orange and yellow on the color wheel, or something like." that. Actually, I don't even think it's between it. I think it's like <laughs> yellow, orange, and red, um, and it somehow gets more intense. And oh, yes, you've seen orange; you're wearing an orange shirt. Mm. And so, if we made that more intense, somehow it would shade into red. And you say, "Okay, yes, but that's not just that's not a description mm. of the color. Yep. That's, I'm just telling you what would happen if certain things happened." Um, so, I'm kind of fascinated by this. I'm fascinated, by the way. That experience, um, in some cases, is really the you know is a vehicle um, for content and communication. Right. Okay. So if we take that fact that sometimes you absolutely have to have experience to know what something is like, mm-hmm. um, then we can think of what happens when you have this new kind, like a new kind of experience, like you see color for the first time, or you fall in love for the first time, or you go to you know Tokyo for the first time. Is um, so that you have a kind of revelation? Okay? Um, the world reveals itself to you in mm-hmm. some sense, um, or at least how you make contact with the world mm-hmm. um, involves a kind of revelation. So when I see blue for the first time or I see red for the first time, um, it feels like I've learned something mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. Um, and new. And I think I have. And, and in virtue of having that new experience, I can imagine things I couldn't imagine before. I can think about possibilities I couldn't think of before. All kinds of things. Okay, so we take that idea that experience brings something distinctive and special to us, and then um, think about particular kinds of experiences, like big life experiences. And because I said that when you learn when you have a new experience, it can change you. Well, what I mean by a big life experience is a life experience that changes you in a dramatic way. Right. So the thought is
0: that, and what an example of that uh, be like?
1: Ah, so one of my favorite examples mm. is um, having having a baby, so ah. having, especially having your first child. Mm. Um, but I would say going to uni is like that. Um, arguably, uh, going to grad school mm. can be like that. Mm. Uh, going abroad for the first time can be like that. Mm. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's the same for everyone, but mm. that for many, many people, these distinctive kinds of experiences, both. You know, reveal something. You discover something about the world, and you discover something about yourself. Yeah, right. Right, and um, and how, in a way, how you respond to the world in, in certain in, in certain ways, and and who you are, and I think that this epistemic shift, if it's profound enough, can also then brings about a personal shift, right? A personal transformation. It changes who you are. Mm. So if you put those two things together then a transformative experience basically is an epistemically and personally transformative
0: right, experience. Right. right, Okay. Yeah. And you – okay, so I've got a, and I have a few thoughts. Um, I guess the first, the first one is um, – so I, I'm doing a hermeneutics class at the moment um, and we looked at Schleiermacher and he's got this idea that, um, you know, the objective of communication is to recreate the mental state of the author. Or you know of the narrator or something? Um, do you think that because it sounds like uh, I know that you give the example of I one of it was a, a really good example of um, a vampire and becoming a vampire um, and how you know if if everyone's saying oh you know you should become a vampire this is what it's like and then they actually say oh no you know um, it, upon deciding to become. in deciding to become a vampire the only way to experience it is if you actually do it um but so i guess my question is sorry that was a quite a long tangent do you do you think that there's something wrong with language in that we can't communicate Mm -hmm. we can't absolutely communicate what it is that we experience so i can't there's also like mary and jackson jackson's Mm -hmm. mary who's Mm -hmm. in the black and white room Mm -hmm. and you know she looks at all of the Information on light waves and you know understands exactly what it is for red, you know scientifically, but then you know she has she experienced red when she goes outside and sees the fire truck, the red fire truck is that the same as what she conceived before? I don't think so, um, or maybe maybe it is, but um, do you think that it's impossible?
1: Um, right, so the first thing is it's not that I think there's something wrong with language. Okay. I think that um, the human brain. Is you know is is a fascinating organ, and um, it's just a fact that language can teach us something. So language is a vehicle for some kinds mm. of content, but it it can't do everything. Mm. So um, you know we have to have experiences to learn about certain kinds of things. So right. it's just that it's just that the way that our brains work. Experiences bring us some kinds of information, right. and language can bring us other kinds of information. Right, right, right. And part of my work is, you know, intended, like, is, is what I've been saying to a lot of my contemporary, uh, you know, peer philosophers is to say, look, we've done so much work on language um, as, you know, a vehicle for content, and so much work on sort of understanding w- what that medium brings us. But we as analytic philosophers, have not attended enough to experience. Mm. Um, and there are lots of really interesting discussions of consciousness. So there, it's not that we have ignored experience. And officially, Frank Jackson's black-and-white Mary example is intended um, to draw out facts about consciousness. Mm. But I think there are all, all kinds of other really interesting things that we can think about with respect to experience. And mm. consciousness is important, but even, even Jackson's black-and-white Mary example... Um, you know, is interesting for other reasons, right? So, yeah, I don't think that um, just knowing the color science and knowing how the brain works is enough to know what it, you know what it's like to see red. I mean, I think it gives you some information, mm. but it there's something missing, mm. something essential that you can't get,
0: you know,
1: through the language.
0: Mm. Um, okay, and so because there is this, there is something that we can't access through language. Um, you know, if, if someone. In making a decision to have a child, uh, you know it's impossible for someone to know exactly what that what impact the child is going to have on their existence. And I think you discuss things in terms of utility. Is that right? Mm. Um, yes. Okay.
1: Um, I well, what I say is I talk about subjective value. Subjective value, yes, okay. and um, and that's a technical term. And okay. the reason I use that um, uh, that term is because sometimes people think about utility. Or value as say just pleasure or pain, yeah, right. right? Or um, they want to think of it um, in ways that doesn't make room for the value of experience. Right. So the thought is that um, subjective value it includes. I mean, pleasure and pain, of course, like there's affect matters. But the thought mm. is that it includes you know the value of actually coming into contact with right. the world. The value of experience is included in the reward. Mm. And the reason I talk about value is ordinarily with decision theory we think about um, probabilities or likelihoods, and then we think about the values. And you, um, if you're thinking in very standard decision theoretic ways, the idea is to try to figure out roughly, not explicitly, you know, what's the best thing to do. And the best thing to do is to maximize your expected value. Right. That's the, you know, act in a way that's most likely to kind of bring about the best result. Right. <laughs> Basically. Um,
0: and. In terms of, you know, going back to the child example, um, if you don't know whether having a child is going to bring about the best result, um, you know, the the maximum value, um, how do you decide? Because is the issue, and what does this have to do with with rational thinking, for example?
1: So the thought is that, um, let me, um, so the thought is that, the subjective value um, is the value of the uh, lived experience, okay? So the thought is, like, how, you know, is this a way that I want to live? Is this a way that I want to be? And, you know, how valuable is that to me? Not in terms of, like, how much is it worth to me, but rather, like, what's the nature and character of that experience? Right. And is it, is it an experience that I want, right? Um, and the thought is that, first, before you have a child, before you've had a child, there's a really important dimension of it that you just can't understand until you actually have the child. So Mm -hmm. there's a catch-22 there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've raised questions about that because if you're supposed to sort of step back and assess all your different possibilities and assign them value and decide what the best thing is to do before you actually do it, then you're in trouble Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about choosing to have a child because it's precisely what you can't access is what I describe as the identity-defining attachment that you form to your, your child, Mm. at least under ordinary circumstances. Not everyone does form this attachment Mm. and that itself is also, um, a kind of experience, a Mm. difficult kind of experience, I think for many people.
0: Um, okay. Um, and so then what, what do people, what do you do if you can't, if you can't have such thoughts, Mm -hmm. if you can't have that identity defining experience, do you just thrust yourself off into the <laughs> void and hope that you're going to have this really benevolent child who's going to...
1: Well, kind of. I mean, the beautiful thing about human psychology is that, um, as we were saying before, you know, when you have a new experience, you also respond to it. Right. Okay. So the thing about people who have children is when you form this attachment relation, it changes you. Mm. And wonderfully, mm. probably for evolutionary reasons, mm. often we're very happy that we form that attachment, right. right? So something about the attachment itself makes you happy right. to, to be in that situation. Mm. So for many people, even if they didn't want to have a child, afterwards, they're thrilled, mm. okay? So there's a sense in which, um, you know, our brains protect us, right? And you were asking about, you know, going into philosophy. Well, the same kind of thing might have mm. happened there, right? Um, the question, though, isn't, um, for me, isn't so much about Um, is it going to be okay, but rather whether or not uh, standard decision theory can actually capture this fact. And I don't think it does a very good job of capturing this fact. It was sort of a kind of, I feel like there was this sort of God's eye view, for lack of a better phrase, or bird's eye view that people tried to take when they thought about decision making Mm. and were developing these models as though we can detach ourselves from the world somehow Mm. and just observe the different options um when we're thinking about what's rational and i think in some of the most interesting cases of uh you know life experience we can't do that mm. and if we can't we need some other kind of model or we need to fix the models so that we can think about doing things like choosing to have children as rationally as possible
0: okay and what are those models um, well
1: i don't have any good suggestions what <laughs> i <laughs> to be honest well i have one okay that's not true i have an ex- i have a suggestion Maybe I I don't know if it's good, but I think it's the only one right now that okay. I think is even a little bit acceptable. And that is, I think that we have to recognize that sometimes we can rely on testimony to some extent. I mean, right. I don't think um, that you should do something that uh, that might be transformative if all the evidence you have suggests that it's there's no possible good outcome for you, right? right? Um, but when we're in a situation where it seems like there could be good outcomes, there could be bad outcomes, or it's highly likely to be good given say testimony and at least the information that you have Mm. then i think you can decide to discover it right right um i think it's really important to be clear that you don't it's not like even though you have this testimony and you have this information you don't still don't know what you're in for right but it's part of living your life um in a thoughtful way that you you know decide to become the person say that is a parent or is a philosopher and that's what living is about
0: yeah, of course. Um, okay, uh, and yeah, one one thing, one issue that I um, I have, and that I'm not, I, I don't think I quite know the like how, where I stand on this, but um, it sounds like this kind of uncertainty, this question mark that we have before we kind of you know go down the path of having a child for example whether we we don't know whether it's going to be a wholly positive or negative negative experience but you know we make the decision based on testimony let's say mm-hmm. um, if it was possible for us to know whether it was going to be wholly positive or negative let's say you know there's a chip that you can mm-hmm. put inside your head that mm-hmm. Elon Musk made on a, mm-hmm. <laughs> on a warm Sunday um, do you do you think that That's a bad thing. Do you think that this uncertainty is, you know, extremely important in the human experience?
1: Oh, that's interesting. Um, Okay, let me just pick on a technical term, which is I think it's not uncertainty, but unknowability. Um, And I only emphasize that because, um, um, I mean, in a very broad sense, it's a kind of uncertainty. Sometimes people use it that way. But I want to distinguish between knowing what the different options are and what the different values are and just being uncertain right? Which one's going to, Hmm. uh, going to occur and not even knowing in Hmm. some way, in some deep sense. And I do think that not even knowing is, is the situation that we're in. Um, I, it's a good question to, to think about whether this unknowability in a sense is, gives us meaning, right? Because if we, I mean, there is a, there is a way in which when everything is simply uncertain mm. when everything seems to be mapped out you know you, you you understand the decision tree it's a bit like when you're playing chess and you know if if you know all the moves um if you see if, if you had you know an artificial if you were an ai and you could see um every possible move mapped out in front of you there's a sense in which the mystery is gone mm. right and so you might be incredibly good at making decisions but there might be something else that was lost
0: yeah right mm-hmm. um because to tie this into authenticity, um, you said you studied Heidegger and mm-hmm. uh, when you first got into philosophy or started studying philosophy. Um, I wonder what would happen to his accounts of authenticity and inauthenticity if you know everything was already known, if you couldn't kind of self author mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. like what would happen to existentialism mm-hmm. if there was an answer to every existential mm-hmm. question you had?
1: Well, and the thing is, well, let, let, let me let me. So that's a really no, no. Let me distinguish between though. Like, um, it's 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 if you could, ha- part of it is, um, you could have the answers, but not know that you had the answers. Right, 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 right. And so part of it is sort of knowing that you have the answers. Even then, there's still something there because let's say you know you know what a result is, but mm. there's the process of 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 of. Of engaging or kind of performing right. that um, that answer, and that has value as well. Mm. So I want to—I I don't know what would happen, but I want to separate those things out. And I think right. that um, both both parts are, are things that I want to capture in, my, in in my
0: account. Okay, um, and how? I guess I'm interested in um, the link between the transformative experience and politics. Mm. Um, do you think that it plays? And don't feel like you have to answer this question. Um, but do you think that it is if, you know, people are aware of the fact that um, experience is very important in understanding and that in order to, you know, kind of to have that um, identity defining. Uh, so I've forgotten the way you phrased it. What was?
1: Oh, um, I think. With having a child, it's child. an an identity defining attachment. Attachment. Order. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it wouldn't but, be an
0: attachment relation but, for other but things, but a profound
1: identity defining shift. For sure If mm-hmm.
0: you if it if people are made aware that you know it seems like understanding hinges on this kind of identity shifting experience. Do you th- do you think that you know in order to communicate messages on let's say climate change or you know other pressing issues, there needs to be some sort of you know you know, it's one thing to say um, go vegan because, you know, P- Peter Singer gives speeches uh, at the uni quite often. And he don't. you know, his, his, <laughs> I can't reduce Peter Singer's account to go vegan because, <laughs> but you know, like if you, um, if you tell someone to stop eating meat because it harms animals, you know, and they go to the, the grocery store and they see like, some chicken in a packet, you know, it's it's very far removed. Mm-hmm. You're not really experiencing the suffering mm-hmm. of the animal, mm-hmm. but you know, I imagine if you put people in an abattoir mm-hmm. um, and you know got them to experience mm-hmm. that, you know, that mm-hmm. it, it would probably have a more profound experience. So, do you a more profound effect? um Do you think that there is some? Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. So, I think um, a couple of places where couple of places where um, the work that I'm doing sort of makes contact with some of the issues you were raising. The first is that I do think that there are these differences between people, differences in their life experiences, and that it can be incredibly hard for us to understand the testimony of someone who, whose experience is very right. different from ours. And one issue goes going back to like knowing what you're doing or knowing what, you know, an outcome. I think often we don't know what we don't know. Mm. So, you know, why why isn't it um, the case that I can understand what it's like for someone who comes, uh, say, who's like, who comes from a very different background, um, who has d- deeply different life experiences? Why can't I just understand what it's like for them to live their life through yeah, their right. testimony, right? Say someone who comes from an impoverished background mm. or someone who, um, comes from a very different part of the country. Right? Mm. Um, you would think that I should be able to understand them if they, if they, they, when they tell me things. And I might think that I understand them, and then I make judgments based on what I think I understand. Mm. But if there's a principled reason why maybe um, I would actually need to kind of try and go live the way that they live for a bit to have that kind of experience to really understand, mm. then um, there's a problem because I think I know something that I don't know and I'm making judgments about that. Right. So I think politically that can be very relevant. Mm. Right? The other thing is that climate change um, is one kind of, I think, future change. Or f- certainly, well, it's happening now, but I think the possibilities for dramatic and negative change are significant. Mm. But there are other kinds of changes. And you alluded to Elon Musk, and there's all kinds of technological changes mm. coming down the pike. And there again, the problem is that um, it's coming. And there's a way in which we don't know what's coming. Mm. And um, I'm not opposed to technology. I mean, I'm a fan of lots of technological change, mm. but it is you know, it is frightening in some sense, because we know we don't know, yeah, in right. that case, right? I mean, it's more apparent there. Mm. So I think there are political ramifications for that as well. and And trying to understand how to think about these kinds of things, and not assuming that you know more than you know is really, really important, and using the right formal tools to try to forecast and make policy. Uh, I think is really important in these kinds of contexts.
0: Right. Um, And have you, has the, I imagine that, you know, your philosophy has had a profound impact on your life, but have you taken any individual lessons out of this transformative experience? Like, do you kind of withhold, um, I don't mean judgment in a a negative sense, but do you kind of withhold coming to a conclusion before you have experienced Mm -hmm. things or
1: i think the main lesson i've taken is that unknowability and uncertainty does have value actually, right. or that it's or at least that um undergoing or experiencing it in your life isn't doesn't have to be a negative thing right you know there's a lot of pressure i think for people to have certainty and to and also to make decisions the best possible way or the right way versus the wrong way hmm. and i think what i've what i've Learned through exploring this is that um, humility is is really important, and also that even if even if we're responsible for our choices, which we should be, we're not always blameworthy if we mm. for what we do. I mean, sometimes it's just just not about praise and blame. Mm. So it's about choosing different possibilities and making yourself in, into the person that you are, and understanding that that's what living is.
0: Mm. Okay. And speaking about humility, um, your current book. Oh, a project, a current project that you're working on has humility in the title, I mm, believe. Mm. Um, tell, tell me about that.
1: So I'm interested in, um, part of what I'm interested in is in, is what we can't, you know, knowing what we can't know about, right? right? And also understanding how sometimes um, we might be afraid of various kinds of experiences, how sometimes certain kinds of things that we don't know are things that we don't want to know. Right. right? um and so i talk about that a little bit but um i haven't i haven't explored the ramifications i think of 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 those ideas in a in a clear enough way yet to talk about them okay it's it's, it's the book is in progress i hope to finish it over the next sort of nine months
0: so. well and what's it how how has it been the the what's it like being an academic i actually <laughs> haven't like all the my i've been institutionalized for so many years oh that 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 sounds pretty pretty um george orwell 1984-esque but <laughs> um i yeah i haven't actually i haven't heard too much of apart from yeah actually i haven't heard too much of what the experience has been like um
1: i think it varies for a lot of people i can right. tell you about my experience which is i'm very lucky i mean i have a I love my job, and I love the, institu- I love the institution that I'm at. The mm. university is wonderful, and I love my students, mm. both the undergraduate and the graduate students. They're all fabulous. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I enjoy it very much. There's um, research, obviously, and uh, teaching. I teach undergraduate classes and graduate classes, and I get to travel. Um, I, I travel around the world and meet really interesting people, mm. and I tell them, about what I'm working on and they ask me really interesting questions. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's fantastic, but, um, but it was a lot of work to get here and, and I'm also very lucky to have the job that I have.
0: Mm. And do you, there's a certain, um, uh, yeah, I think like I, 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 come from a migrant family. Um, and you know, for my father, there were two options. In terms of career, there was medicine and there mm-hmm. was law. Mm-hmm. Um, for a long time, I wanted to do medicine, and then I think around about the time I was eighteen, um, I realised that I enjoyed, you know, kind of abstract things. Um, my mum, she's a teacher, an English teacher, and she studied language, um, languages, and she was more into the abstract. Even and my dad was more into kind of you know the sciences, um, and so I decided to defy him when I enrolled in a law degree which was the other option that he gave me uh, which is pretty you know very original of me um but when i let go of the law degree and picked up philosophy um yeah i felt judged not only by my father but by a lot of friends Mm -hmm. who didn't understand the the utility they Mm -hmm. didn't see you know they they couldn't appreciate um that it was something that I was interested in. And, you know, we're just, you know, the joke about, you know, me working in a cafe for the rest mm-hmm. of my life with my mm-hmm. BA waving proudly behind mm-hmm. me. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, do you, what do you think about philosophy, about studying philosophy in 2019? Um,
1: well, okay. So there's an official line that, um, you know, there aren't any jobs and it's, you know, um, people who shouldn't be encouraging Uh, responsibly encouraging people to go to grad school Mm. and and uh, okay I officially endorse that in the sense that it takes an awful lot of hard work and luck Mm. to do well but I love it Mm. I mean I you know and it's um it's a wonderful thing to do I think what's important is if you want to do philosophy is to do it because you love it and hope that it goes well but Mm. it doesn't always It, it can help to when you apply if you I mean when I say do philosophy there's the undergraduate degree an undergraduate degree is actually incredibly good preparation for all kinds of things Mm. I mean you know you can get a fantastic job in just about anything with Mm. an undergraduate degree in philosophy because what you are is an excellent thinker Mm. (laughs) right so um but if you want to go do graduate work in philosophy where that entails going into the academic sector that's a much more risky thing to do um but there I think look carefully at the graduate program's if you get into a school that has good placement or at least if you get in you can look at the schools that you get into and where they're placing people and I think you can think you know, you can infer that there's a decent chance that um you'll get the kinds of placements that the others before you have i mean yes things change and if you're happy with that then and you love you love doing it, then I would never say not to do it mm. um And I'm trying to be careful here because I know that sometimes people have not had good experiences and they're unhappy because they can't find jobs and Mm. there aren't that many jobs, Mm. but training your mind is such a wonderful, beautiful thing to do that, um, it's hard for me to think that anyone could be making a mistake.
0: Oh, well, I think that's, I think we're just about out of time and that's quite a beautiful note to end on. Um, So thank you very much for coming in, Laurie Paul. That was was a wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did.
1: I did. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot. Hey. Uh, Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, And now I hope that you end up feeling like you can never know what it's like to do anything. And so you just... I hope you just do nothing for the rest of your life because you can't know what it's going to be like to do anything. And so you shouldn't decide to do anything. Um, no, I don't, I don't really hope that at all. I hope, um, I hope you do things still, but I hope now you have a bit more of an awareness of, um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you'll think about, deciding to do big things a little bit differently, um, you'll kind of, I don't know, maybe use a different metric to evaluate them as opposed to like exactly how the experience is going to feel for you because you don't know that. Remember? Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, in the next interview, I'll be talking with someone who means very much to me. Um, she, yeah, she knows me very well. Her name is Steph. She's my housemate. She is half Lebanese and half Slovenian. Um, we talk about what it's like being a person of color, what it's like living in Melbourne, um, and what it's like coming from a particular kind of family. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, if, you, if you really enjoyed it, send me an email or a message or something. Tell me. Tell me that you enjoyed it. Tell me what you didn't enjoy. Um, tell me whether you think there are more things that I should talk about. Uh, tell me if you think there's someone that you want me to talk about. Um, yeah let me know, please. And, you know, leave me a review on iTunes or something. Um, that'd be really nice and I'd appreciate this. Um, so yeah, until next time, love Alex.